Welcome to Sam's Business Growth Show. I'm Sam Dunning, a digital marketing, sales, and business growth evangelist. Tune in and subscribe today as I'll be interviewing business leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs from around the globe. You'll be learning their story, how digital marketing has helped them along the way, and exclusive tips and insights to help you skyrocket your own business. And welcome back to a fresh episode of Sam's Business Growth Show. I'm excited to be joined by Tim Johnson today. Tim is responsible for the overall sales at Visualsoft since he joined the business back in 2004. Tim has been instrumental in the company's growth. He's directly involved in developing the business for an initial handful of clients, now to a portfolio of well over a thousand strong. Tim is highly experienced and he enjoys a hands-on results-orientated approach to business development, sales, revenue generation and process optimization. E-commerce specialist Visualsoft are an award-winning cloud-based e-commerce platform and full-service digital marketing agency. They're established back in 1998 and they provide e-commerce solutions to well over a thousand businesses in the mid to enterprise space. The company now employs a whopping 250 different digital specialists at four offices in Stockton-on-Tees, Newcastle-upon-Tyne, Manchester, and now an international office in Dubai. Tim, a warm welcome, my friend. How are you doing? Thank you. <laughs> That's a lovely intro. Thank you very much. Bit of a mouthful. <laughs> cheers, cheers, man. I appreciate you coming on. So um, really excited to learn from yourself, Tim, as I'm sure there's a lot we can discuss, all things kind of business growth, digital marketing, bit of sales, and plenty of bits and pieces in between that's going to be of value to our audience. Um, but before we get to how you've scaled Visualsoft to where it is today, uh, it'd be interesting to learn a bit more about your background, really, Tim. So kind of where you grew up, how you got into the business world, some of the key places you worked at up until Visualsoft, and if you could share with us a few lessons, a few tips that you picked up along the way. Yeah, um, relatively uh, humble upbringing. I grew up on a, a council estate in uh, Stockton, small small house with me and my uh, my two brothers, my mum and my dad. Uh, working class background, we didn't have a, a lot growing up. Um, but we had... Um, my dad had really, really strong values and a really, really high kind of uh, work, strong work ethic. So um, we often find as we were growing up, my dad was a little bit of an entrepreneur and he would try different things and he would he would try different ways of, of kind of hustling or making money on the side, as it were. And he would always kind of try and drum into my brother that we, we if there was these little tips and things that he would give us along the way. And at the time, it felt like he was kind of nagging. And actually now when I look to where I've got in my career and where my brother's got in his career, you can actually see at the, our core, those values have really been influential in kind of our own progression and our own growth. So there's things like um, where he would he would often instill on us, if, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well. If you're going to do something, you do it to the best of your ability. Um, he would always uh, drum into us that, that don't follow what everyone else is doing, try and kind of challenge the norm and think of different ways of doing things. He used to even say to me things like, can't you invent something? Can't you think of the problem, reverse engineer it, and there's, there's, there's money there. There's money to be had in, in coming up with solutions to kind of problems. And there's lots of little things like that along the way where he kind of drummed into us that, that and he was quite strict, my dad, um, and, and anything we were doing, he would make sure that it was like he was cleaning his car. He would go under the wheel arches at the end with his finger. Um, but even then, even when he was getting us to do these tasks, it was always uh, reward-driven. So it was like, you're not going to get, pocket money if you don't do this work you're not going to get um this if you don't do that and because we didn't have a lot growing up um 
it's very different to kind of my family environment now where if my daughter wants something, we can just go out and get it. For us, we have to wait and save and, and, and build things up. So we, we learned the value of money really, really early on to the point where on a weekend where um, my friends might have been out playing football and things, I'd be out cutting grass trying to make money. We'd be going in the woods trying to find golf balls to sell back to the golfers over the fence. And it was always trying to find different ways of, of doing stuff, a bit like buying and selling, I guess. Got it. Um, so it sounds yeah, like your dad instilled some humble. really good values in you in, in terms of business, in terms of the value of money, like you said, and working hard, which is, yeah. I'd say, really good things to pick up, especially from a young age. So, yeah, please, but at the please time, it didn't me. feel like that. At the time, it felt like he was just being really tough on us. And, and Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, it would as a yeah, kid, we, I suppose. We didn't get it. Yeah, we didn't really get it. Um, so in terms of how that kind of evolved, then I... I went to uni, I got an interest in computers really, really early on. Um, okay. I went off to to Teesside Uni, did business computing there, not because I had a particular career in mind, just because I actually liked computers. Um, so I thought I'd go and do something that, that I liked. When I uh, I went to go to uni, um, back then, they, they, they kind of sold you the dream to some extent that you could be earning crazy money. If you get a degree in stuff to do with computers, you, you, you could be earning lots and lots of money. Um, and it obviously wasn't the case when you came out of uni, it, 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 didn't, it didn't happen that way. But I left uni and um, my first job, uh, like proper job, I had a side job in the shop and so on while I was going through uni. Um, but my first proper job was at a, a company that doesn't exist now, but back then it was called Ask Alex. And it was essentially like a, a business directory, a bit like the Yellow Pages. Okay. Um, but nobody had heard, nobody had heard of it. Um, I didn't actually know it was a sales job. So the, the role was advertised as um, a digital media advisor, I think it was at the time, or digital media executive. Yeah. And when I went for the interview, they said it was uh, calling small businesses. And because the industry was relatively new then, it was giving them advice on, on the web and on, online and, and, and websites and that kind of thing. And obviously me, green as grass, thinking, oh, I've been to uni, I've done computers, that's why they want me. Um, I, I got the job, past the interview, got the job. And... In the training uh, in the first few weeks, I thought it was strange because I was asking the other people that were that were there. There was like 20 people in the same training session. And these were people that had sold double glazing, that sold insurance. Like none of them knew anything about computers. And I thought like... <laughs> what's <laughs> going on here? <laughs> yeah, like, what's, what's going on? And when you left the training and you went on the floor, you realized it was this kind of massive uh, call center um, of just people hammering the phones. And ultimately what you were selling was uh, 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 listings on a directory that truth be told, nobody was using. Um, and you could upgrade to appear higher in the results uh, and you could get a link to your website and we would also sell you a website if you needed a website. So very, okay. very similar to the Yellow Pages. It was bought out actually, the business, um, by Scoot. So you might have heard of Scoot. Okay, um, yeah. And over the years, it was an ITV local. It, it, got, it evolved and it got bought out by different people over time. But from... The sales perspective, what what happened there was they had a constant churn of, of, of staff because what would happen is you would come in for three months and then you would realize that nobody's using the directory and people that had high ethics would go, I'm off. Um, or people that couldn't sell something they didn't believe in wouldn't do the numbers and they would get laid off. So then they would bring in another trudge of kind of new yeah. recruits. And it was this constant cycle of bring in 20 and you might get three or four, bring in another 20, you might get three or four. And it was just constant churn. Um, 
and it was all numbers driven. So you can imagine it a bit like a, a this kind of boiler shop, this kind of get on the phone, just hammer the numbers, dial, dial, dial. Um, and you were ringing small businesses that, that, that I almost liken it to some extent, like the Wolf of Wall Street. You were, you were ringing people that, that didn't really understand digital. They didn't know how directories and things worked. And you would just try and get the credit card details to sell them an upgrade. Yeah. Um, and it didn't sit comfortably with me. Um, and I also didn't like the fact that you were ringing people that you knew it wasn't going to generate any business. And the objections you would get would be things like, so I would ring you up today and say, hi, Sam, I'm calling from Ask Alex. And you'd say, who's Ask Alex? I've never heard of it. So when I'm saying, do you want a listing on this directory that nobody's heard of, the objections you get are then kind of, well, if nobody's heard of this directory, how am I ever going to get any business from it? Even if it's only two or 300 pounds a year beyond there, like how, how can I justify it? So what I did was I went away and I thought, right, how can... How can I make this proposition worth something? How can I make it worthwhile? So rather than just picking up the phone and ringing anybody and everybody, I went away for the weekend and I thought, I'm going to approach this different. And what I did was I thought, well, if I was to ring and be reasonable, so I said, look, I know what you're thinking. You've never heard of this directory. And I know what you're thinking. You're not going to get any business. And actually, if you're lucky, you might get one or two deals a year from it. So I then started thinking, well, who could I ring where if they got one or two deals a year from it, it would make more than what it costs. So ah, rather than ringing okay. these people with really low value products, ring people with high value products, because even if they get one deal, it'll more than cover itself. So I then started thinking, well, how am I going to get past the, 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 the gatekeepers? Because you're ringing these big companies and you can't get past, get past the gatekeepers. So I started thinking about the problems. And what I came up with was photographers, so I thought, right, I'm going to ring photographers because if they get one wedding book in a year, it'll pay for itself. And people might use this directory and search for a photographer in a certain location, that kind of thing. So what I then found was um, the, the, the concept worked. So the idea of ringing somebody and saying, look, I know what you're thinking. You've never heard of this. But if you get one book in a year, it'll pay for itself. That was ticking some of the boxes. But then I still had the same challenge that they'd never heard of me. So I had no authority. They'd never heard of this business that was, that was ringing them up. And because it was a, a directory that not a lot of people were particularly using, there was no massive desire to get on there because there was no kind of competitive tension. So what I did was I rang the National Association of Photographers and said, look, I want to show you something. And I took them onto the directory and I said, if you search for a photographer in say Newcastle or Middlesbrough or whatever, see the results that come up. And they were like, they started getting annoyed with hold on a minute, these aren't National Association members. Who's that guy and who's this guy? And I said, well, this is why it's important. Like, ultimately, what we want to give you is the right results high up. We want a, an authorised photographer to, to, to come up high on this. Would you agree that would be a better thing than a random list of names coming up? And they were like, well, yeah, of course. I said, well, if I could go around and make sure that the, the top results were always National Association members, would that work? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, if that's the case, would you would you mind if I actually just mentioned you when I when I call these people and say that we've had this conversation? And they said, yeah. So then I totally changed my script. So what I did was I rang up and I wasn't ringing up on behalf of Ask Alex at that point. I was ringing up on behalf of the National Association of Photographers. Now, if you're a photographer wow. and the National Association <laughs> photographer ring you, um, you get past the gatekeeper and you get straight through and you get their attention. And the other thing what I'd realized was because it was early digital days, they couldn't really perceive what a directory online was. So I found that I was going to burn my lead if I tried to close it over the phone. I needed to show them. So it was kind of show, don't tell. So what I 
I did was I came up with a process where I tried to book them into just a five minute session where I can get them onto the internet. I can show them what it looks like because when they could see that they didn't appear in the results, they wanted to appear there anyway. And what I then did was I went town by town and cut a long story short, I once I'd sold that first position because it was a first come first serve basis, it was very easy to ring the second guy in your town and say, Sam, I want to show you something. Can you see how that top position's gone? That's gone now. Now, luckily for you, you're the second person I've called in Teesside today. So you can have position two or you can have position nothing because I'm going to go through and ring all of, them, all of the members. And it's whether or not you want to be higher up or lower down. And that fear of missing out was massive. So what I ended up doing at that point was closing a very, very high proportion of the calls I was doing. And the whole floor was kind of looking and thinking, how is this guy coming in and doing relatively low calls, but very, very high conversion? And I just re-engineered it. So at that point, um, I got put onto kind of a special projects team where it was doing slightly different things than something else. Um, and again, those values are kind of make sure you show value, um, make sure that you, you've got a, a really strong opening statement in the first few seconds that's going to grab the attention. Um, and work smart, not hard, was kind of my mantra back then. Um, get good data and, and, and run with it. I then, that's, that's awesome, man. So just to quickly recap that, you basically found a problem with the system, as in they were just calling all these customers. There was no real value there in terms of the offering. No one really understood it. And it sounds like you did a number of things. So you, you worked out basically what the high ticket options were. In this case, photographers, they only needed to land a couple of deals and then called up worked out that they all wanted to be under the national association of photographers basically sorted out a deal with them whereby you could essentially reposition it as their offering and then did you say you were doing like a five minute demo kind of thing with them yeah so, so probably... I was, rather than to try to close it over the phone like everybody else got it i was actually refusing to do my pitch until i could get them in front of a computer so my my own sales process i basically took their sales process threw it out the bin and came up with my own so my own sales process was the first sale is selling that appointment, selling that five minute yeah. and stick to your guns. And I remember early on um, kind of saying to myself, I had it on a post-it note and I would say, shut up when you achieve that thing. So even if they seem really keen, I wasn't going to press and try and close it. I would stick and, and, and kind of cut the call short once I'd achieved that. Yes, let's have a 10 minute catch up, whether that was we can get online now or we can get online tomorrow because the, the fact that of seeing it was so much more powerful than just trying to do it over the phone. And I still, I still live that to this day. Like I think we use emails to get telephone appointments. We use telephone appointments to get FaceTime. Like we, we, we try and work that way even, even now. So right. I, le I left that business. Um, uh, I basically got headhunted. One of the, one of the guys that worked there left and said, I want you to come and, and, and work for me and grow a team. And what he said was, I want you to, build a, a team of people that do what you do. So rather than having a, a floor of 60 salespeople and one person doing it the way I do, his vision was if I can take Tim with me, I can actually get Tim to train 10 people doing it his way and, and happy days. And that's what I did. So I went with him. And at the time we were, we were doing a similar model and we were selling, you probably won't even remember these, but they were called overture keywords. And back then on search engines, you could buy your keyword. And when somebody typed that into the search box, it redirected you to that particular website. Oh, um, wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So you, and you when could was sell this? them by your keyword. God, this is 2000, maybe just before or something a little bit okay. earlier. Um, and what you could do is you could ring somebody up and say, do you want the keyword? 
online marketing or do you want the keyword accountants T side or whatever? And that keyword would redirect straight to that website. We'd be like buying a domain name. That's um, like gold dust. Yeah. So the problem that we had with the model that we were selling was it only worked for the people that had that plugin of that particular uh, browser that, that, that we ah, were running. Okay. So it had a massive flaw in it, but we could train people to sell it and lot, we were doing decent numbers selling it. But again, I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable selling it. I didn't like selling it because you were, you were essentially selling something that wasn't worth a lot of value. But what I did like was the training side. I liked the ability of taking kind of a zero and turning them into a hero because the people we had working, again, I know Wolf of Wall Street's a crazy film, but the fact that he kind of took these people that were kind of nobodies and he, turned, he gave them a good script and he turned them into something. I, I really enjoyed that movie because there's certain elements that you thought that was like us in the in the 90s kind of thing. Um, How did and, you do that, Tim? So you mentioned you, were, you, t- you basically got employed by a, a new company and you were, instead of being a sales rep, you were essentially a sales leader. So you had a, a team of reps under you, you trained up. So have you got a quick snapshot of how you trained them up? Was it just following a simple process that you told them it to use? Or was it something based, else? So b- okay. back then it was just very, very kind of, when they say that, you say this, here's your script. When you say that, you say this. And I was still selling. So I wasn't just kind of running it. it. It was like, I was selling it, but I was like leading by example. So it was like, do it, but then show others Love how it. to do okay. it. And it was kind of, we were creating more and more of these people that could do it that way. But like I said, I didn't, I didn't feel particularly comfortable with it. But I did, like the, I did like the training side. So I actually left that company and I went to work for a company called General Physics. PP Strategies are called now. And I worked there for about three years as a... Um, a training consultant which was ultimately going out and um selling uh training solutions and, and onboarding um, trainers and candidates onto the programs okay um in my spare time so that was a a, a role where it was pretty much home based and what i'd found in that role was i could and this is going to sound really awful now but I'd, I'd i'd found that i could actually deliver the same amount of sales as somebody that was doing it full time in around two days a week. So because the other people that were actually doing the, uh, the, the training consultant role were from an education background. So these weren't salespeople. These were often people that used to be in training, used to be lecturers or whatever. Um, they would find it quite hard to go out and onboard new businesses and, and, and convince recruiters, to, uh, candidates to come onto the programs and so on. And I found it relatively easy. Uh, and all I would do is back then, because I was young, um, is I would just, check in with what everybody else was doing nationally and make sure I was one ahead of everybody else. So what they were spending kind of a full week doing in terms of the quarter, I could do it in a few days. So I'd started getting into eBay at the time and I'd started building up a business where I was um, buying and selling um, footwear and trainers and and, and stuff. And it got to a point where that was taking over um, as the the balance kind of tipped from me being, this is my full-time job to, this is my full-time job. And at the kind of end of that, that, that GP role, I was only working one day a week. I was doing six days a week running an eBay business and one day a week doing my job. Um, I expect you were raking money in, weren't you? <laughs> I was doing all right. <laughs> and um, a new manager came in and said, uh, we're changing things up a little bit and we're changing to this different system and it's all about time logging and things like that. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't run a, 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 an eBay empire. And, and, and work more than one day a week. It just doesn't, there's not enough time in a week. So I put my notice in and he couldn't get his head around why I put my notice in. He was like, you're one of the top performers. Like, why you put your notice in? I was just like, look, it's just not for me. But what had happened at that time is um, my dad had passed away and it was the summer 
And I just thought, you know, like, I don't need that job now. I've got a lot of income coming from this other thing. I'll just do this. Um, I thought, if I'm going to do it, now's the, now's the time to do it. And I did that. And then I got a call from, uh, it was a few months into that, living the dream, being my own little kind of eBay boss. And um, I got a call from VisualSoft, which back then was a very different business to what it is now. It was two founding directors in an office not much bigger than the room I'm in now. And um, I wasn't interested at first. So I got two calls, basically. I think the first call I got was, uh, they rang me up and said, would you like to come and speak to us about a role? And I said, what is it? And it was uh, digital. And I was like, not, not really that fussed on, 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 on digital. Um, and then I think they rang me back and I said, oh, I'll come in, we'll have a chat and thought maybe I'd better just sell you something. Um, and what they built was uh, uh, the world's, it sounds crazy now, but they built the world's first um, online training platform. There's a site called Free Skills where you okay. could go online. They partnered with the University for Content and you could go online and ultimately you could sit uh, a training uh, course uh, and you could get a, a test at the end of it. And the revenue stream was around advertising because back then, before the dot-com bubble burst, you could make a lot of money on banner advertising and things like that. And they'd got this product, but it was kind of, we, how, do we make, how do we make it big? How do, how do we get it to market? And I think at the time they'd gone online and searched for somebody that had experience of digital, of sales, of training. And back then, 2004, whatever, I was probably the only guy that came up on the internet. Like there won't have been a lot of choice. Uh, it wasn't like now with, with LinkedIn and so on. Sure. Um, and that's, that's where it all began, really. Nice, man. So just before we move into to VisualSoft and how you've scaled up that company since you joined back in 2004, what did pique my interest was when you said you were working at home doing this training solutions two days a week, basically phoned up to find out what the national sales were, thought, yeah, I won up that, and then eventually did it in one day a week and just harnessed the rest of your time on this eBay biz that was doing pretty well, it sounds like. But what did you actually do to, to beat a sales quota within two days or one day? What were you doing differently to everyone else? Obviously, you had the sales background, but was there particular things that you were doing to make best use of your time? Um, better data. So again, like I think back then, the way that you would do um, prospecting was literally uh, walking the floor. So like you'd, you'd have people walk. Say, for example, you were going to try and onboard uh, people into uh, retail apprenticeships or it might be you'd literally walk down the high street knocking on doors saying can I come and speak to you about retail apprenticeships <clears throat> but you would waste your time because the vast majority of stores the decision maker isn't in the shop I mean so you're just working a, wasting a load of time speaking to people on the shop floor when they're not a decision maker so what I would do is I would again cut to the chase I would go into the shop and say look I know you're not probably going to be the decision maker but have you got the contact details of whoever at the office deals with this kind of thing so like I would try and always work smart rather than work hard so that I wasn't wasting any time on, we, I call them the unclosables, people that can't be closed. Like yeah. I, I, I wouldn't waste any time. So I was essentially what I was doing is I was qualifying out really early. I was getting good data, okay. qualifying out really early. And I was also asking for referrals. So what a lot of the people do that, that are not in sales or weren't from a sales background is they didn't really understand the importance of asking for referrals. So at every single appointment that I was going to, I was asking them for the name of three other businesses that I should be speaking to that may also be interested in this. And then I call this a, a seeded referral. So I would then ring those three businesses and say, Dave at that shop down the road, he's busy going to be signing up with this particular thing. And he said that you might value this as well, which again, you, you save so much time trying to 
appear as a, an expert or an, an authority on something and, and, and get on gatekeepers, if you can just actually go on with the name of the guy that referred you because he's already doing it and you've got that kind of... So thought. strong, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, and again, it was just working smarter rather than working hard. So where the people I was competing against were working really, really hard, literally walking the streets and knocking on doors, I was splitting my time where I might only do that once a month, but that would then set me up on a, on a long enough pipeline to work really, really smart and, and, and do it that way. Got it. So solid data, identifying where the decision makers are and not wasting time and then always asking for referrals. So asking if you've, if you've done some business with someone or, or perhaps not, if they know three businesses that might be able to benefit from what you offer and then yeah. um, doing a warm intro saying, look, Steve from down the road said I should get in touch because he said you, you, you could benefit from this. The other thing as well is I think keeping in touch with the, with the decision makers as they moved around. So you'd be okay. surprised how much business you can have when um, your contact at a particular business moves on. Now LinkedIn is okay. brilliant for that because it tells you when someone's moved around, but back then we didn't have LinkedIn. You, you had to just check in and say how things going. And then they'd say, oh, Dave doesn't work here anymore. If you don't mind me asking where he's, where's he gone? And then you would ring wherever he's gone to and say, oh, Dave, it's me again. Like, and you'd often find that they would bring you with, with you wherever they went. Awesome, man. Really like that. Cool. Okay, so moving forward, so Visual Soft. So before we start recording, you said it started in a, a small room similar to what you're in now. And now obviously you've got 200 plus staff all around the UK and internationally. But how the heck did you grow it so big? And what is really a relatively short time, Tim, how did you guys make it happen? Let's talk a bit about some of the frameworks you put in place and also some of the marketing strategies that have kind of skyrocketed you guys to where you are now. Yeah, um... I think there's a mixture of things. Like we, we, I wrote an article on our 20th anniversary. I never ever write articles about anything. And on our 20th anniversary, I thought, I'm going to have a bit of reflection and look back. And I wrote an article and I put it on my LinkedIn about kind of the secret to our success. And like sales cannot take any kind of, we were just a small part of the ingredients in the cake. We can't tell it was a fantastic sales strategy. It was the best kind of marketing ever. We did a lot. We had some really good people along the way. Timing. And you know yourself, Sam, timing is crucial um, in, in sales. Um, and we just, not luck, but I think a series of the right things at the right time helped us get to a certain level. And it was underpinned, in my opinion, by quality. So one of the things that I'm a, I'm a real kind of stiffler for is, is, is quality. Like, I, I don't like anything leaving visual soft unless it's completely polished. And... That goes not just the work we produce, but anything, whether it's a tweet, whether it's a brochure, whether it's a proposal. And the two things that for me that really drove the success was maintaining high quality standards and focusing on automation. So what we try to do is look at where we can replicate and scale with technology. So if I look at when we first started selling, I literally had a notepad. So we, we would go out and, and you'd have nothing but a notepad and a pen. We didn't have anything fancy. And you'd listen more than you talked and you'd make notes. You'd go away and you'd spend all day writing a massive Word document about what the proposal was going to look like and so on. That evolved into creating a, a, a master proposal where you chopped out the bits you didn't need. And that then evolved into actually, we built a system where you can click buttons on what features somebody has and it creates a proposal for us. And now what we can actually do is we can put into our system the profile of the prospect. So if that was a, a retailer within footwear and our system basically shows you which features and functionality are the right spec for the customer. So it's, a, it's evolved now to a point where we can create a proposal really, really quickly 
that's actually nailed on for the client without having to kind of go and sit right and, and do admin all day. And you know yourself, good salespeople are not particularly good at admin. They don't like sitting right and specs and that, proposals. I don't know any sales professional. I don't know about marketing, but certainly sales that like writing up quotes, write, like writing up demos, like writing up proposals. It's always the yeah. thing you leave to the end of the day, half four, all right, I'm going to do that demo now. Demo now. I've been leaving it around. So that process sounds very slick. Well. It's, it's focusing your core skills. Yeah. So if you look at, a, and obviously we've got SDRs and BDMs, but if you look at BDM, their core skill set is actually, we call it being a doctor and not aware. They're co- they're, they're, what they're really good at is asking the right questions to get the right information to put together the remedy for whatever the problem is. And what, the, what you don't want them doing is, is that's a valuable resource. They're really, really good at that. I don't want them wasting any time during the day doing the role of an SDR or doing the role of a technical consultant, writing up specifications or doing the role of a PA, writing out Word docs. I want them spending as much time as possible being a doctor. And what we've done through automation is we've basically put technology in place that allows people to really focus on that particular thing that they're really good at. And we kind of got there over time through trial and error. So we're always trying to automate and we're always trying to do things where it frees up your time to focus on speaking to people rather than doing paperwork. But actually, um, when I read a lot of books, I do audio books and so on. I actually did um, Predictable Revenue, you know, the, the guy that basically built Salesforce. And sure. in Predictable Revenue, it talks about the importance of specializing your core roles so that SDRs focus on booking appointments, BDMs focus on doing deep discovery and consulting and so on. And if I read that book kind of 20 years ago, I could have probably skipped out seven or eight years of trial and error because we basically, when I read that book three or four years ago, it was, I was like, I can't believe this. This is what we do. Do you know what I mean? Like it was like, we were doing it the same way, but we got there very, very slowly through trial and error. So what I try and kind of get into the sales team is don't do it the way that I had to do it because I didn't have any other way of doing it. Do it through, the following what we're telling you, following the right process and learning from other people's mistakes, not making your own. And we do that using software. We do that using systems. I know that you, you're aware of the likes of um, Refract, for example, where you can, sure. you can record calls, but more than record calls, you can cut snippets and create libraries of best practice and, and that kind of stuff. So that when you bring new people in, they're not burning the leads and they're not making the same mistakes as all of the other new hires before them. So for me, it's all about that automation and, and, and scaling it with um, doing it right first time rather than everybody making the same mistakes as each other. That's so good, man. Um, and that's, that's massive progress, like you say, from writing everything down on paper and massive Word documents up to the stage where sales professionals, business development managers can just go into a system, tap in a few things on the customer persona, and then you've got a proposal ready to go. And I think, like you say, it's so important because especially, I mean, it's more difficult with small businesses where perhaps sales or marketing reps are fulfilling multiple rules, roles. But once you get to the point where they're able to fully focus on their job, like you say, because most sales, sales guys aren't or girls aren't that great at writing up docu- detailed documents and things like that. And it's not, like you say, best use of their time when they're great at speaking to people, they're great at nurturing relationships, they're great at getting deals over the line. So why not keep them focused on what they can do? Rather than waste their time. I think so if, you, if you're going to do that yourself, so if, if when you're starting out, that's you with the individual and just you doing it, you need to split yourself in half. So rather than trying to do everything all day long, you need to split your time and say, right, I'm having prospecting Mondays or I'm having prospecting mornings, like so that your, your mindset is in that, well, I'm a consultant now or I'm a prospect now. Because you know yourself, Sam, like 
once you if you get interrupted and, you, and, you, and you're distracted you won't be as effective you need to get into that flow so it's very very hard to go well i'm going to do some cold calls now and then i'm going to do some proposals and then i'm going to you need to stay focused in that in that period of time to be the most efficient that you can be um so having good time management i think is key especially when you're small so sure. that you're not actually just a busy fool running around in circles. But in terms of that kind of quality, I call these remarkable touch points. So what I would constantly do with the business, and it is constant, still constant to this day, is look at every single touch point and say, is that remarkable? And what I mean by remarkable is, almost by definition, is it so good that somebody would say, I'll have a look at this, it's brilliant. And we knew we were doing that right when we would chat to, the, to sales guys from some of our competitors at some of the trade shows and so on. And they would say, my boss came in last week. He slammed a visual soft brochure on my desk and said, why aren't our brochures like that? Or a, a, a pitch that we're going for, they would get a visual soft proposal. And they're like, I wish our proposals were like that. So we were looking at every touch point and saying, is it, is it remarkable? Now, if we put sales to one side, in terms of the product, again, we... We knew this early on, so we, 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 we had a, a really good team that really cared about quality. So even when we were doing websites 10, 15 years ago, every one of them was kind of like a work of art to us. It was like, our, when a project came in, the brief was basically find out who the industry benchmark is and make it better than what's out there. So we were always striving for high quality. And because our name was at the bottom of every site we did, if we could make a brilliant looking website and we could make it rank top of Google, we knew that other people, the competitors of that website, would see that and go, I want one of them. And even to this day, if you look at where we get a lot of our inbound inquiries, it's because of the work that we do. It's all, we have this kind of mindset, we call it shared success. And we know that if we do a good job and we get exposure for our customers, we in turn get exposure because ultimately our name's at the bottom of it. Such a solid strategy. And I love what you've just said there, Tim, about putting remarkable work out at every single touch point. So not only does it reflect well on you, but it helps you generate more business. And then, like you say, you've got your name at the bottom of website. So then that's going to help bring in more inbound. So that's, that's solid. Um, so what would be interesting to talk about, we've talked about kind of the process you, you've put in place in terms of sales. But if we could switch it a little bit, perhaps to the digital, to the marketing side of things, if you could talk about some of the marketing channels that you guys have had success with to bring in the leads, bring in the pipeline and get deals over the line that perhaps some of people listening in that aren't as switched on on digital side of things or people that are looking for new channels that might be of use to them could uh, tune into. I think you've got to have a blended approach. So you'll, you, you see these debates a lot and I've even seen you on some of these kind of podcasts and things where it's, it's, it's cold calling dead and, and, and social selling is the future. Yeah. Like the, the, the truth is, you, in my experience, you will not have one silver bullet. You want to have one particular piece of that pie that results in all of your leads you'll actually find that you get ones from different avenues. So you'll get some from referrals, you'll get some from existing clients, you'll get some from uh, your, your online strategies like pay-per-click, SEO, your email marketing strategies and so on, social media, like they'll, they'll come from everywhere and anywhere. And for me, it's about the um, it's about the audience. So we know this because we're an e-commerce provider. We know that when you come to selling um, shoes online, Everybody doesn't go to Amazon. Everybody doesn't go to Google. Everybody doesn't go to Facebook. Some people go to Amazon. Some people go to Facebook. Some people go on a mobile app. Some people go on a mobile device. Some people go on a desktop. Like you, you, you know that in order to reach that full market, you need a different approach depending on how the user wants that approach to be. And for me, sales is no different. So from a marketing perspective, there'll be people that might be in the market to buy 
a website today that might go into Google and type in, I'm looking for an e-commerce platform or I'm looking for a, a marketing provider or I'm looking to grow my business. So you'll get people that will Google it. You'll get people that might be on LinkedIn and they'll put, can anybody recommend a provider of this? Um, your referrals, obviously, if your industry partners know what you do, they can pass referrals across. And then you've got, obviously, your outbound activity. So we, we still do um, cold calling, as it were, but we don't really do cold calling now. We do warm calling. So we try and identify a data-first approach where, for us, our cold calling now is more of a qualifying out rather than selling okay. in. So we, we identify a, 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 a pot of people. We put, we put a lot of time and effort into making sure that this is a cluster of retailers that we really want to partner with. And then what we do is we, we have a, an SDR team whose job it is, is to qualify them out to say, basically, <laughs> prove us wrong, see if we can get them out. And then the ones that you're left with, we, we really, really do want to partner with them. Let's go from there. So we've kind of reversed it to, to some extent. But we don't, again, we don't want to waste any time calling people where it's an absolutely unclosable prospect. So again, we, we put a lot of effort into the data side now. So we make sure that, that we're making kind of an educated guess on the types of people that we're approaching. And is, is that going from the data that you've already got, Tim? So the type of customers that you're already working with, be that like VP of marketing, sales directors, marketing directors, things like that, understanding what your current client base is and their job rock titles, and then making sure yeah. the data is similar to that in terms of... Yeah, so we do, we do uh, lookalikes. So we what we'll do is we'll know that an ideal prospect might be turning over between... A and B, it might be using the following e-commerce technologies, okay. uh, it might be in the following geographical locations, and then we, we blend that data together. And then we've, we've made the assumptions, let's go out and prove or disprove whether or not that's, that's correct. And it allows us to focus, they're really focused on the types of businesses that we want to work with, rather than just, again, all the way back to those first call center days, we're not, you don't want to be ringing 100, 200 people a day that are just all going to say no. Um, because you're trying to find that needle in the haystack. Because the problem that you have with that is your your salespeople. For me personally, I actually think the SDR side of the sales role is the hardest part of the process. You get a lot of rejection. You've got to be really, really resilient, really buoyant. And if you're ringing the wrong people, what you can often do is beat yourself down thinking, I've lost my touch. I'm not really good at it anymore. I can't open the door. And it might purely be that you're just ringing the wrong people. So to stay kind of buoyant as an SDR, you need to be given good data. You need to be given good strategy. You need to be given good data so that you're not facing constant rejection. Um, otherwise, you'll have a high turnover of, of, of SDRs and you'll have low conversions because the confidence levels drop. Yeah, completely agree. It's like giving um, giving someone, for, in our example, uh, to the job of selling digital marketing solutions and then uh, you're pitching to a load of, I don't know, gardeners. <laughs> and yeah. they've, they've got no cash in the bank. They've only just started their company. So probably the last thing they're going to be thinking about is a website or an online marketing solution or anything like that. Or Bob the Builder, who probably doesn't have cash to, to put together, maybe a small solution. Whereas, I think as well, Sam, going back to that first example where we talked about that call center, it's about thinking about a, a, a company that you're going to call that genuinely is going to get value from that transaction, that partnership. So like, there's no point you ringing gardeners. If you genuinely, even if you were a brilliant salesperson and you closed them, it wasn't going to be a positive outcome. So one of the things that we, we talk about in sales training, it's really kind of kind of crass. We, we kind of say we, we don't do one night stands. We do long-term relationships. So if you actually think about it that way and you're going to be with this client for a long time and that client might refer a lot of people to you all the time, you've got to pick the right relationships because if you pick the wrong ones, 
they're not going to be happy. They're going to tell people not to use you instead of using you. And they're actually going to be a drain on your resource. You'll find actually that you're not able to go out and onboard new people because you've brought on the wrong ones in the first place. And you, your service delivery teams are not going to thank you for it either. So for me, it's about making sure that you, you, you sell to the people that actually need what it is that you're selling. Um, and it's going to be a, a, a positive outcome for, for both parties. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's like you like you say, Tim, bringing back to the very first point where you're in the call center, doing the research, understanding who can actually get value from what you're offering. And then it's, it's got a bit of longevity in it rather than just a quick win that will probably turn sour. It's like you say, it'll drain your resources and, and everything else. Okay. Excellent stuff, Tim. We've covered some great ground today. Um, just to wrap up, this is, a t- this is a tricky one. If there's one thing that businesses should be doing with digital marketing that's going to benefit them from today, what is it? Analytics. So uh, you've got to have really, really good analytics because otherwise you're going to be spending and wasting your marketing in all the wrong areas. If you don't have access to data to know what works and what doesn't, how do you know where to invest and where to pull back? Like you'd be surprised at how many people don't have rock solid tracking. And I'm not just talking about clicks. I'm talking about all the way through to profit, revenue, like where you're getting that real value. Solid answer. Love that one. Well, everyone, you've been tuning in to Sam's Business Growth Show, where we sit down with business leaders, experts, and entrepreneurs from around the globe. We find out their story, how digital marketing has helped along the way, and exclusive tips and insights to help you skyrocket your business. Tim, if you could thank just one person, either dead or alive, having a positive influence on yourself and your career, who would that be and why? I think with my dad, like I say, I think he's uh, his DNA. Is, is my brother's quite been quite successful as well. We, we came from humble beginnings and I think a lot of the values, even now, some of the things we talked about today were drummed into me when I was seven and eight year old. Like it's it kind of stuck with us right the way through. Good work ethic and all that kind of stuff. Excellent stuff, Tim. And tell us a bit more about yourself, the best way people can connect with you um, and how they can get in touch. If you want to reach out to me on uh, LinkedIn, I've got a, a shortcut. It's j600.com. It'll just redirect. So if you search for Tim Johnson, I'll probably come up. Uh, visualsoft is visualsoft.co.uk yeah feel free to connect brilliant thanks so much tim thanks sam are you tired of constantly hunting for new customers you could be missing out on regular inbound opportunities all because your website isn't on the first page of google perhaps you're already spending lots of money on advertising but your website is failing to convert all of your hard-earned visitors into a consistent flow of new customers If you'd like to learn more about our unusual approach that brings idle clients straight to you, connect with Sam Dunning on LinkedIn or book a free 20-minute consultation via webchoiceuk.com. That's webchoiceuk.com. Subscribe today for more digital marketing, sales and business growth tips from the experts.